Pharmaceutical Technology presents the Drug Solutions Podcast, where the editors will chat with industry experts from across the pharmaceutical and biopharmaceutical supply chain. Join us as experts share insights into your biggest questions, from the technologies to the strategies to regulations related to the development and manufacture of drug products. This is the Drug Solutions Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast. I'm Meg Rivers, Senior Editor for Pharmaceutical Technology, Pharmaceutical Technology Europe, and Biopharm International. Without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to the editors who will share more about what you can expect in this episode. Welcome to today's Pharmaceutical Technology Drug Solutions Podcast. I'm Felisa Mirsal, the Science Editor for Pharmaceutical Technology. Now, before we begin, I'd like to thank Samsung Biologics, who's a sponsor of this podcast. Samsung Biologics is a fully integrated CDMO offering end-to-end contract development, manufacturing, and laboratory testing services. Now, today I'll be speaking with Dr. Barry Holtz, Chief Scientific Officer at Biologicals. Barry has extensive expertise in the biopharmaceutical development and manufacturing industry, including facilities design, process development, and quality systems development. He was a co-founder of GCON and co-inventor of the GCON Autonomous Clean Rooms. He also led the design, construction, commissioning, and operations of the DARPA GCON effort that resulted in the Caliber Biotherapeutics Facility in Bryan, Texas. Barry was Senior Vice President of Biopharmaceutical Development for Large Scale Biology Corporation for 15 years. He has held research management positions at Foremost McKesson and was on the faculty of Ohio State University. He received his PhD at Pennsylvania State University and was an NSF postdoctoral fellow at Scripps Institute of Oceanography. Barry has been awarded 23 US patents and has published more than 60 scientific papers. So welcome Barry, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. Well, thank you for having me, I appreciate it. So we're here to talk about bioceuticals and a plant-based technology that the company has for producing some protein molecules, some therapeutics. I, I wanted to first start out by asking Barry if you could give us a little bit of explanation of what this technology is. I believe you call it the PMP technology. Um, so maybe you could sort of give us a little bit of explanation what that's about and how this technology came about. Well, like a lot of things uh, in pharmaceuticals, uh, it's a brand new technology that's only 30 years old. And for pharma, that's probably about the right life cycle for development of uh, new technologies. It took us that long to get from penicillin to Cho and then Cho to something else. So this technology has used plant cells and plant uh, tissue to make heterologous human proteins. And it's been doing it for 30 some odd years. Uh, The original start of all of this really got uh, a lot of traction in the late uh, 80s in Silicon Valley, when the folks at Zoecon came up with the idea of using tobacco mosaic virus and inserting a new gene into tobacco mosaic virus and then infecting a plant, a field grown tobacco plant. And as the virus replicated, it also replicated the gene. So this was a transient technology, did not make transgenic plants. 
And for years, we developed that technology into a robust manufacturing idea where we would take uh, normal field-grown uh, hybrid tobacco plants, infect them with a viral vector, harvest them, and, and uh, isolate and purify the, the heterologous protein, the human protein in most cases. In the 1980s, toward the or in the 1990s, toward the head of uh, uh, about a decade later from what I was just speaking about, we developed the idea of using vertical farming and automated agriculture indoors to grow another little plant that was in the tobacco family. It, it actually is an Australian ornamental plant that grows to about eight grams. It's a pretty little house plant. But it has uh, great capabilities for uh, uh, tolerating a lot of extra protein. And we could manipulate that plant by using agrobacterium to insert the new gene. And the real cool part is when you, this is a agrobacterium tumefaciens is a plant pathogen. It's a common infection in plants, many types of plants. But the right species of it can insert a new uh, piece of DNA into the nucleus of the plant without making it transgenic. The DNA is inside the nucleus. It replicates like nuclear DNA, but is not transgenic. So the really cool part about this is we can grow these plants in great quantities and they are generic bioreactors. So we grow them up to eight grams and then we actually invert them into a solution under vacuum of agrobacterium when that vacuum is released, the agrobacterium floods the interstitial spaces of the leaf, and virtually every cell in the plant is infected by the agro. Once that happens and the new gene is inserted into the nucleus of the plant, which is instantaneous, we only have to maintain the plants for five to seven more days before they produce the maximum amount of protein that we're going to harvest. So just to recap, we have a generic bioreactor is not transgenic, it is not carrying any new genes, it's not making a product. It is just a, a, a single plant, only we grow millions of them at a time. The plant in College Station, Texas uh, grows 2.4 million plants as in-process inventory every day. So we use those plants as generic bioreactors. We make a vector, which is agrobacterium, we infect the plant, the plant makes heterologous protein, we harvest the plant, and then we purify it like you would any other uh, cell-based protein product, you know, similar to Cho and baculovirus and other systems like that. So that's, that's how this all evolved, and it, it evolved through several companies. Large-scale biology was the first one, and that was in the late 80s. That went public in, in early 2000s, and then uh, the next one really to come on scene was Medicago, which has now just been granted a use award for their COVID vaccine. And then right after that came uh, Caliber Biotherapeutics, which was this joint venture between GCon and DARPA during what we called the uh, uh, Blue Angel project for DARPA, where they were really putting some effort behind plant-made pharmaceuticals. And just to give you one last blast from this. Uh, when we built the facility in College Station, which is an enormous facility, it's 130,000 square feet, 55 feet high, 
a very large facility. It can make uh, 150 kilos of a monoclonal antibody in a year. We were given the task by DARPA to show off what it could do. And here was the live fire test. The live fire test was to get a gene in the mail for a subunit vaccine that we had never seen. Now this was during the H1N1 pandemic. Remember we did have a pandemic before COVID. Um, people forget. And we were to make 50 million doses of that subunit vaccine in 12 weeks from receiving the gene sequence by email. And we did that. So it shows you the power of the, of the technology. So that's kind of the quick evolution of how things have happened. There's a lot of smaller companies out there now. The facility that we built back in large scale biology days is now Kentucky Bio, uh, which gained some fame during the uh, Ebola epidemic. Um, so there's, there's a lot of interest in what we call PMP or plant-made pharmaceuticals uh, these days. And we have licensed products where there's hundreds of clinical trials. FDA knows us very well. This is not a new technology to them and they've been very supportive. So it's a mature technology and uh, now it's got to go on to be something more than that. So I'm just curious, I mean, I, I would imagine uh, being as now this is a, a mature technology, as you said, have there been the comparisons between, uh, you know, monoclonal antibodies produced with PMP versus what's um, being produced out of mammalian cells today? Uh, is there, what's the comparability there? It's virtually identical. Um, plants do glycosylate a little bit differently than, than mammalian cells. Actually, though, they, they uh, glycosylate more uniformly than Cho cells do. Cho cells, when you go from 10 liters to 1,000 liters to 10,000 liters, the glycoforms change because of the stressors on the cell and the heterologous or heterogeneous nature of, of mammalian cell glycosylation. Plants maintain a glycoform pattern very uniformly uh, through their life cycle. So we, we can... We can change the glycosylation. We can make it mammalian identical uh, by changing some of the glycoform chemistry. All that's been done. And our antibodies now uh, behave and act just like anybody else's antibodies. Uh, there's no reason that a plant-made antibody will be any different in form or function. It may be uniform, more uniform than a Cho cell, but certainly, uh, in most cases, it, it can be identical. And that's been shown with rituximab and some other uh, constructs, all, also in ADCs over the years. So it's, it's a more mature technology than most people think. And I, like, uh, like we, we will talk about, it's now got to change from being uh, a technology that's well known to one that's disruptive. So that's actually leading to uh, sort of my, my next um, uh, question here is, right, the status of this technology. So it's no longer considered, or I guess you could say it would not be considered disruptive technology being as it's not a new technology, it's been around, uh, it's more mature. Um, so it, is it more something that you would say it's established or, or is it, or would you consider it more of an emerging type of technology? Because even though it's around, I'm just wondering in terms of its awareness in the biopharmaceutical industry, right. 
uh, you know, it, it's adoption, for example, um, in the industry, would you say it's more of an emerging type of technology in that sense, in terms of its sort of reputation or its, its um, awareness in the industry? Yeah, I think you've hit, hit it right on the head. That's a great question. Uh, it, it's not an emerging technology as far as technology goes. It's, it's actually fairly mature. The real, uh, the real tipping point is now how does it become disruptive? In the last few years, we've all seen, uh, I'll just name three, two, three, plant-made pharmaceuticals, mRNA, and baculovirus become mainstream. That's the first time that's happened in my whole career. And I've been around longer than dirt in the biotechnology business. It's not, not a young guy. Uh, so all of a sudden, these technologies that have been nascent for some time have emerged with real products and scale up and economics, all of that, which makes sense. The thing that's happened with PMP, especially starting with the caliber of biologics facility in Bryan, it was the first time that real automation, uh, heavy duty automation and large scale CapEx was really investigated. And with the help of DARPA and GCON in that joint venture, this facility becomes a model. Well, fast forward 10 years. At Phyloceuticals, what we've designed for the next gen is completely hands-off automation. There will be no humans involved in it. And we'll now use uh, machine learning, eventually develop AI algorithms for individual products that increase yield. But the bottom line is to produce the same amount of heterologous human protein, monoclonal antibodies, subunit vaccines, uh, take your pick. The CapEx for these facilities compared to a bioreactor-based facility, whether it's solid stainless or disposable, is about 60% less. And it's all in the upstream. Downstream, we all look pretty much alike. You know, there are some nerdly advantages I could go through about plants, but it's not gonna tip the scale. The other is the OPEX. Since it takes so much many fewer people to operate one of these facilities, hands off and automated, compared to what it, you know, to growing plants and automated hydroponic systems or aeroponic systems, which is our new technology. We just don't need the people. You don't have the maintenance of bioreactors, all the, electronics we have a lot of electronics but it's all facilities automation and materials automation mostly and of course we have controlled environments and things like that to to deal with but that's pretty straightforward so in terms of its in terms of then of facilities maintenance you know schedule what would that look like then if there's really not going to be um you know no real, real need for human intervention or interaction but do you still need some personnel to come and just, you know, check every quarter or something every three months or every month that all the machinery, all the, the, the automation is running smoothly? You, you literally have the automation do it for you every millisecond of the day. Oh, okay. That's what's built into the automation is, is the veracity of the data that you're collecting. We go to great lengths to collect and guarantee the uh, inviability of, of the data. We also have, I say process automation, which tells our operators whether things are plus or minus whatever 
the percentages that you need to operate within to meet your design space. So yes, there are operators 24 seven, but nothing like a 10,000 liter reactor. It's just not in the same ball game. Now downstream, uh, I say we're very much the same. So our maintenance schedules and a lot of those things uh, in normal clean rooms are, are rather identical to other people's downstream situation. So we, we look and smell and run and worry about a pharmaceutical facility like everybody else does. It just takes a lot less folks to do it. Now, I just wanted to ask because we you talked about mRNA vaccines and uh, MABs being produced using this technology. Is this also a type of technology that can be used for gene therapy and cell therapies are in the spotlight currently in terms of development and and what the biopharm industry is is focusing a lot of effort on. Uh, is this a technology that's also applicable to production of gene therapy or cell therapies? Well, it's, it's probably applicable to producing uh, RNAs and DNAs uh, of, of specific things. But cell therapy, of course, is dependent on mammalian cells being modified to do things in mammals. And that's, uh, that's where we, we don't get into that right. area at all. Right. Um, so that's... That's probably the, the D mark. Uh, the real utility at this point is, is in making protein-based systems. And we can make lots of very esoteric ones. Medicago, for example, makes a VLP in the plant by using normal plant membranes to encase the target of choice or the protein of choice and secrete it. We have a lot of very interesting things like that. Also, plants don't make any human viruses and they don't harbor any human viruses. So we don't worry about viruses. That was actually, that was leading to my next question because it seems to be eternally plaguing biomanufacturers in downstream processing is that viral clearance, making sure that all the, the viral particles, in addition to other contaminants like host cell protein or cell debris, has all been cleared away to get a pure product. So how, how does that work here? If the plants aren't making human virus, what then becomes the main focus when trying to do your downstream processing, when trying to do your purification? We just make sure it doesn't happen in the upstream. So we use no animal materials at all. I mean, plants really live on minerals, CO2, sunlight, and very simple. So all of those materials are totally inorganic. We don't use organic materials at all. We recycle the water, a large percentage of the water, but we microfilter it and sterilize it every pass. We don't, we have good insect control in our rooms. They're sealed, they're positive pressure, all of the above. And people just never touch a plant. There's no reason for a human to handle a plant, period. We've got automated systems that, that take care of the plants. So th th we've just not had an issue where we've shown that any human viruses have been maintained in the system. Because we got away from using soil, we got away from using any organic materials. It's all aeroponic at this point, which is just spraying water on the roots of the plants. They, they aren't even embedded in any material. They're just hanging in the, in the stream of, of mist. I think one of the things that we should think about too, and one point maybe I missed earlier is that this, when I said this is really gonna get disruptive, one of the things that makes it most disruptive is the fact that we can make these new vectors to code for a new gene and get the, the nucleus of the plant to start making a new product in days, not weeks, not months, not scaling up a stable cell line, 
we've got all the cassettes. We put genes in very rapidly. It takes, I say, seven to 10 days to get a construct ready to test. And we can test it in, in days. Since it only takes seven days to make the protein in anything, we can, we can do it quickly. But what that does is get time to clinic very much reduced. And then when it comes time to market, it's, it's a huge number because we never have to scale up. We know how to grow a hundred thousands, hundreds of thousands of kilos of plants. And they're all eight gram plants. They're all generic bioreactors. They're all the same. They always have been, and they won't change. So scale up is not an issue for us. Another question that I wanted to get to was this idea of, um, well, I would say another trend that we're seeing in the industry is this continuous manufacturing processes. And it, I guess it would seem to me that that's pretty much what this technology does. It's, it's pretty continual. Is, is that so? Would this be considered uh, continuous manufacturing? It's close, Lauren. It's not strictly continuous, not like a, uh, you know, a continuous bioreactor system would be. But since we, we grow, let's just say in the Bryan facility, we go 2,500 kilos of plants a week. We harvest that many, infiltrate them, and have almost a continuous downstream uh, going on. But we do have batches, so we'll, we can accumulate uh, at different points along the, the uh, downstream path. But they're large batches, which is helpful. Uh, they're not small batches. So we reduce, again, the regulatory time, the release time, and all of that on each batch. And you get, the, you get the advantage of scale. So we'll do 35 to 40 batches, 50 batches a year. And so in, uh, aside from the vaccine that was that you had mentioned the COVID that was approved in Canada. Is this technology used to manufacture other products that are already approved or already on the market? Well, one of the big ones is our friends in Israel, Protalix, that has done glucocerebrosidase for, uh, for Febre's disease. That, that product is a biosimilar, it's a huge protein uh, it's been on the market for many years. At large scale, we had a product in phase three trials until the company decided it wanted to be a proteomics company against all the rest of our wishes. Uh, but that was an autologous cancer vaccine and it was incredibly successful. It was almost scary successful. Our, our phase one, two trial, no patient perished from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And there's been a lot of monoclonal antibodies brought forward. There's a lot of products coming forward, but Again, it's come down to a very few people that have the resources to do this. And uh, that's where the thing has to change. And I think now is, is a period unlike any other period I, I just said in, in pharma history, where we've had three new platforms emerge with new products in response to the pandemic in, in a year or two years, which just shows you how much nascent technology there is and how slow pharma can change. But when the money's there, it changes fast. So I'm, I'm, I'm just sad I'm not 30 years younger, but I'm looking forward to the next decade or two of this. And uh, I think it's gonna be much more interesting because I think people have got broader horizons now.
And with me now, I have Yaakov Nachmias, who is with Tissue Dynamics. And I'll actually have Yaakov introduce himself. So Yaakov, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your expertise, and um, give us a quick intro into Tissue Dynamics and what that company is. Um, wonderful. Thanks, Felisa, and thank you for, for inviting me for the, for the podcast. It's, it's very exciting to be here. Um, I'm a chemical engineer by training. I, um, I studied at the Technion Israel Institute of Technology. I added another degree in biology. Um, and I think my interest in biopharma started in my undergrad, uh, developed one of the first solid formulations of insulin that was licensed to Novartis back way too many years ago, about 23 years ago. And then I moved to the United States where I spent most of my career, first of the University of Minnesota, where I was working on the first 3D printing of cells. So developed a technology called laser guided direct writing, which is the still the highest uh, resolution of cell printing. And one of the first organoids back in 2006. And then moved to Harvard Medical School from there um, where I did my postdoc with Martin Yamash, who is the father of liver tissue engineering, and worked with Mehmet Toner as well. Um, after about two years of postdoc, I got a career award from NIH and built my own lab in Harvard as a junior faculty. And there I was working on hepatitis C, where it was still fashionable. And, and it took a drug for a clinical study with, with Professor Raymond Chung at MGH. Um, and, and got exposed for the first time to organ on chip technology. What I wanted to build is the next generation technologies of organ on a chip. The problem that I think the entire field has right now is that people are still thinking of microfluidic chips in the same way they are thinking about animal experiments. So we want to replace animal experiments, right? We want to replace them because animals, especially small animals, have different metabolism, different genetics, and different physiology than humans. And this leads to the fact that about 70% of the chemicals that are toxic to rodents are not toxic to humans and vice versa. When you're saying replacing um, the use of animals in studies, is that is that something in, for example, preclinical studies that this type of organ on a chip technology can be used, like maybe during uh, the drug discovery phase and they wanna test whether they, they've got a molecule or a compound, um, you know, it, or in this case, you know, a, an emerging therapy. Uh, they, wanna, they wanna test it to see if it can go further in uh, drug development pipeline. Is that something that this organ on a chip technology can be applied to? Yeah, so this technology is applied today. So um, in a couple of different areas. So one of them, for example, in a discovery phase, you can develop an entire disease model on a chip. We're developing, for example, one for fatty liver and another one for arrhythmia. And then you can screen drugs and see which ones are, are, are effective or not in a relatively complex environment um, that is human-specific and not rodent. Another thing that, that people are really applying these tools for is for admitox. So both to see whether the drugs that they have in the doses that they're using have any toxicity in human organs and to try to clarify what is the pharmacokinetics that you can expect in humans. 
So what is the intestinal absorbance? What is the clearance in the liver? What is the excretion level in the, in the kidneys? What is the accumulation level in, in other tissues? So you can start building those organs that will give you very specific parameters where you can start constructing the pharmacokinetic profile of the drug that you're going to take into the clinic. So that would be a more of a preclinical test, preclinical study. Now, just from, from what you said, um, it, because you know, certainly when I talk to biopharma companies, one of their uh, biggest um, challenges in getting a drug to market is uh, the, the time it takes. And everyone seems to be looking at how do I reduce the time to market? How can I shorten my development timeline? And it, it, you know, do you have any thoughts on, on how this particular technology can enable that? Does it enable a shorter development timeline? That organ-on-chip technology that has been around for the last 20 years, I just want to point out, this is not exactly what we're doing right now. We are a little bit beyond this. But that organ-on-chip technology um, is estimated to be able to reduce the, co the cost and time of drug development by 10 to 30%. And it's, it will do that by two ways. One, you're reducing a lot of the risk. A lot of the problems, in, a lot of the time that is taken in drug development is the, are the failure rates, especially in early clinical studies. So if you can reduce the number of failures by relying less on animal models, you can dramatically reduce cost and time. The second thing that it can reduce for you is, is really, again, the, the amount of time in preclinical development. For that, you know, we need to understand those chips can be relatively small. And if your technology can, can be conducive to high throughput screening, and granted, most of those chips are not able to do high throughput screening. If you are able to do high throughput screening, then you can replace 30 animal experiments with 10,000 human on chip experiments. And that becomes a massive cost-saving device. In terms of any regulatory issues, do you think your technology, is, is it fine with F FDA? I mean, you, you know, it's been around for 20 years, as you said. Um, is it a type of technology that would have any issues if it was being currently used in a drug development project right now, let's say for a new type of antibody or maybe even, you know, a new type of other biotherapeutic uh, and it's in the documentation of the company that they're using these organoids as part of the process. Um, is that something that um, will be fine on the regulatory front? You know, the FDA has been pioneering some of these technologies and, and it signed a joint development agreement with some American companies. I think first it was Emulate and then it was CNBio um, several years ago. In the last year, it, it launched its iStand uh, program. And it's, a, it's essentially a program that allows companies like Tissue Dynamics to apply for regulatory approval, kind of recognition by the FDA that they can use these specific assays for drug applications. Um, we are in the process of, of, of completing our applications for this program. And, and I think the FDA is very advanced. One of the things that I would point out is that Britain MHRA is hopefully on the same path. And, and I think that will be very, very interesting to see. At the end of the day, most of the problems that we're seeing is because we're not using the right models or the most advanced models that we have today. Well, thank you to both Barry and Yakov for taking the time to speak with us today. 
And thank you to Samsung Biologics for sponsoring this podcast episode. We hope you'll join us again for another episode of Pharmaceutical Technologies Drug Solutions Podcast. Thank you to our editors and experts for sharing their insight. Stay tuned for future episodes of the Drug Solutions Podcast with the Pharmaceutical Technology Editors. If you want to stay in touch with the Pharmaceutical Technology team, subscribe to this podcast as well as to our newsletters. When you sign up for our e-newsletters, you will be updated about future episodes of Drug Solutions, receive our magazines, learn about upcoming webinars, and hear about episodes of Drug Digest, which is a video series. Thank you to everyone for joining us for this episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast. We will see you next time.